Hello and welcome to Global Reboot, a new podcast from Foreign Policy in partnership with the Doha Forum. I'm Ravi Agrawal, FP's Editor-in-Chief. Depending on where you are in the world right now, your country is either still struggling with the COVID crisis or just starting to see a way out. In New York City, where I live, things are finally returning to normal. But in India, where I grew up and where much of my family still lives, the rate of infection and death remain mind-boggling. Here at Foreign Policy, we've spent much of the past year covering the pandemic and thinking about what the world will look like when COVID finally recedes. For this project, we decided to do something slightly different. Over the course of eight episodes, we'll explore what the world could look like. What if instead of going back to business as usual, world leaders decide to turn this crisis into an opportunity? What if we could all learn sweeping lessons from COVID? Not just about public health and the economy, but also about the other big challenges we face. Racial discrimination, the role that technology plays in our lives, the dire threat posed by climate change. On each episode, we'll tackle one formidable issue by talking to the smartest thinkers around. Our goal is not just to understand the issue, but to figure out how we as a global community can do better. We're starting the series by talking to John Kerry, who serves as President Biden's climate envoy. Of course, Kerry was also a senator for many years and a presidential candidate in 2004. In the past few years, Kerry has tried to solve some of the world's most difficult problems. Middle East peace, the matter of Iranian nukes, the situation in Afghanistan. Now he's focused on the threat to our environment, which has become so ominous, it's hard to imagine a more pressing issue. Sea levels are rising more rapidly than previously thought, and the key to understanding the extent of the problem are ice more sheets. species are now threatened with extinction than at any other point in human history. Looking at how climate change is contributing to these severe wildfires. Take a look at federal... Watch major protests have been disrupting cities across the world as they demand action on climate change. The group... President Biden has opened a major global climate summit with a call to world leaders to step Because up. scientists tell us that this is the decisive decade. This is the decade we must make decisions that will avoid the worst consequences of the climate crisis. Secretary Kerry, welcome. You look very, very intellectual with all those books behind you. (laughs) They're all fake books. (laughs) Uh, I don't think so, but... Anyway, happy to be with you. It's a real pleasure to to get this time with you. Thank you so much. You know, ahead of this interview, when I was speaking to one of your advisors, I was told that climate change is the issue really that fills your heart. You took part in the the first Earth Day in 1970, joining millions of Americans in teach-ins to educate the public about environmental challenges. And you met your wife, Teresa, at the first UN climate conference in 1992. Tell us a bit more about why this issue matters to you so much. Well, um... My mother was a great environmentalist. I grew up uh, by the seashore of Massachusetts and on the ocean and in the ocean. And I have long had an appreciation for my surroundings. I think also that it's life and death at this point. I mean, anybody who has children and grandchildren has to stop and think about our responsibility generationally to the world around us. And we're not doing so well there. But it's not the only issue that has animated me through my life. You know, I came back from 
a war that I fought in and thought it was wrong and fought against uh, that war. And during my time in the Senate, I was outspoken on issues of war and peace. I think that you know, one of the things that has guided me, which is every day is extra, which is a saying that those of us who are lucky enough to come back from a war alive said and sort of adopted as a credo. And I think there's a responsibility that goes with survival that requires you to make sure you make the most of those extra days. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, you tend to take on the biggest possible issues one could imagine. I mean, Vietnam, Iraq, Middle East peace, the Iran nuclear deal, uh, and now this. You could be sipping a rum punch on a beach somewhere right now. Good. I love a rum punch. And it'd be plenty satisfying if you felt like you'd sort of gotten something done. But when things are getting worse, it's pretty hard, I think, to fully enjoy that as much as you'd like to. So much of what you're trying to do and what the Biden administration is projecting, it seems to me, is a reset, you know, a sense of American leadership on combating climate change. But I have to say that there are many leaders around the world that haven't forgotten the Trump era. Global warming and that a lot of it's a hoax. And they know that Trump or Trumpism could be back in four years. The United States will withdraw. But leaving the Paris Agreement was viewed by many environmentalists and world leaders as taking a huge step backward. What happens next? That's the big mystery. And I think I know more about the environment than most people. How do you reassure leaders who worry about the extent of America's commitment? What do you say when they express fears about a return of Trumpism? I personally don't believe it will be possible for Trump to come back and Trumpism, because I think that uh, the course that we're on is one that America is going to embrace and feel very good about. But there are two things that I do say to those leaders. One is, even while Donald Trump was in office over four years, and even while he pulled out of the Paris Agreement, the fact is that 37 governors in the United States and the District of Columbia stayed in the Paris Agreement. And those 37 governors in District of Columbia represent 80% of the population of our country, and they had renewable portfolio laws which they executed, and they did. They implemented them, Republican and Democrat alike. So I don't think the return of someone who denies facts, denies truth, denies evidence, denies science, I don't think that's going to move America now. Secondly, and I think this is the far more powerful argument, when you have trillions of dollars that are being invested in these new technologies and moving into this new energy marketplace that's going to be such a powerful job creator and such a powerful moneymaker. We're going to see the marketplace firmly setting a course for the new energy future, for the new products, and no politician could come along and pull people away from the good jobs, the good salaries, and the money being made. Not going to happen. On the American side of things, how much of the financing you need for green initiatives is tied to the infrastructure bill? And what happens if that doesn't pass? Well, there are certainly things that President Biden has proposed that just are plain common sense 
infrastructure projects that will have an impact on our emissions, on climate. For instance, if you build out a, a smarter energy grid where you actually can send power produced in one part of the country, but you can send it to another part of the country, that advantages everybody. It can help reduce costs. It's a far more efficient way to distribute energy. The, the country that went to the moon and invented the internet and has come up with the vaccines and knows how to build and create, we clearly can do this. It's not a lack of capacity, it's a lack of political will. And the truth is, American citizens, all of them, benefit from an effective energy grid which guarantees a good source of energy for their homes, for their workplaces. Uh, it's long overdue for us. And it's shameful because actually other people have far more efficient uh, provision of energy in some of their countries than we do. We need to get our act together. You know, you used to be a, a politician, Secretary Kerry, and I'm curious, how do you make green initiatives more politically acceptable? The so-called scientific community, just like the so-called media. And Under Kamala Harris and Joe Biden are proposing is one of the most radical ideas. To this isn't about science. It's not about facts. This is really about government controlling almost every aspect of your life. How do you get around that and bring along a part of the country that often hears in the media that climate change isn't even a problem? Well, I think that the vast uh, proportion, I mean, the Americans, the majority of Americans clearly know that climate change is happening and they support doing things that are common sense. Republicans, uh, both in the House and the Senate, who recognize that the bridge connecting their city to one side of the river to the other is not a Republican bridge or Democrat bridge. It doesn't have any ideology. It's a bridge. It's an American bridge. Our grandparents and our parents built that out without hesitation. The great construction periods of the 1930s and 40s and 50s and 60s, Dwight Eisenhower building America's great highway system. They built the America we're living in today. And we need to be willing to invest in the America that we want our grandchildren and our children to be able to live in in the future. I think it's a matter of common sense, and I think Americans will want to do this. Let's talk about China. This administration has been fairly tough on Beijing. Take on directly the challenges posed by our prosperity, security, and democratic values by our most serious competitor, China. Will confront China's economic it's accused China of conducting a genocide against the Uyghurs. It's engaged Taiwan. On China's attack on human rights. But amid all of this, the Biden White House also really needs China as a partner in fighting climate change. But we are ready to work with Beijing when it's in America's interest to do so. How do you, Secretary Kerry, partition this one issue, climate change, from all the other arenas of competition? Well, I think historically, Robbie, we've always been able as a country and big nations, powerful nations that have differences. Usually we've been able to come together and be able to try to negotiate and resolve certain differences. An example of that is Ronald Reagan in the Soviet Union. Uh, he consistently called it the evil empire. He told them to tear down the wall. He was a great advocate for freedom and for democracy. And ultimately, he met with Gorbachev and Reykjavik 
And they came to an agreement that it really didn't make a lot of sense to have 50,000 warheads pointing at each other on a hair trigger and to be living with that day-to-day -day danger. Richard Nixon in China originally in the opening up during the 1970s, these are the things that make a difference. And right now, climate is enough of an imperative for all of our countries. We have differences on economic rules, on cyber. We have other differences of human rights, differences, uh, geostrategic interests. But those differences do not have to get in the way of something that is as critical as dealing with climate. And when I was in China the other day, we negotiated and we negotiated back and forth in good faith. We didn't have to insult each other or shout at each other. We had a serious, tough conversation, but we managed to find the place and the way to be able to agree and move forward. My sense is the Chinese know that there is a benefit to both of us being able to resolve the climate crisis because our citizens are deeply affected by our failure to do so. I know you have a long personal relationship with your Chinese counterpart, uh, Xie Zhenhua, uh, the climate envoy. Tell us what you know about him. What, what animates him? He cares about this issue. Uh, Xie Zhenhua has been working on this issue for years. People who've been involved in these negotiations for those many years have great respect for him because he's been able to thread the needle between uh, the ideological tug or the other differences and stay focused on the climate issue. He's a professional, he's well-read, well-studied, and I think President Xi and the Chinese leadership have great confidence in him. He was appointed an interlocutor after I'd been appointed, I think precisely because we did know each other and we have worked together and we've crisscrossed the world on this issue. And I think if you talk to anybody who has been part of the conferences of the United Nations over the years, they will express their respect for Xia Zhenhua. You know, in speaking to other people for this interview, one of the things I heard is that leaders around the world, they know that when they're talking to you, you have a direct line to President Biden, and that's important to them. How much support does Xia Zhenhua have with Xi Jinping, with the powers that be in Beijing to advance a progressive climate agenda. He has direct access to the president of China. Put us in the room where it happens when you're negotiating with the Chinese. What is it like? How do they approach climate change? And in this climate where there's so much tough rhetoric, there's so much of a need for both sides to appear tough and appear to be, you know, playing to domestic constituencies. And here you are with your counterparts trying to talk about something much bigger that's apolitical. How do you do that? We talk in private. I think we both know that nothing is served by having a television cameras sort of invading you at that particular moment. And we uh, talked with respect with mutual respect, which is the only way to really get something done, I think. Uh, I think you have to know what your bottom line is, and you have to have a pretty good understanding of what theirs may be, and you're trying to find the ways to get the cracks and, and find the mutual agreement. Uh, clearly, uh, he was operating with negotiating instructions. I think there were some limitations 
I think President Biden may have given me greater latitude uh, to try to get things done because we're the ones who are actually trying to move them somewhere. And they're the ones who have a certain path that they've predetermined, uh, which we're trying to move them off of and onto a, what we think is a better and more achievable path and a path that will have better consequences for the world as well as for China. And you go back and forth. That's the nature of a negotiation. I think uh, that they are well-practiced and, and strong negotiators, but then again, so are we. And it makes for a pretty good negotiation. Well, one of the things uh, you've talked about, Secretary Kerry, is about a, a new tracing program with satellites measuring in real time the emissions footprint of corporations and countries. Tell us a bit more about how that works and how you could use that to enforce compliance. Well, this is a, uh, a system that Al Gore and a team of folks have been working on for some period of time, which is to connect a satellite structure that has the ability with modern day sensor to measure in real time the carbon footprint of a particular company or a particular building, certainly a particular country, a particular city. And that way, there's going to be much greater visibility, transparency, and accountability on what people are doing to step up. And that kind of accountability will drive popular demand and discontent with the absence of uh, action uh, to focus on those particular entities. You know, I remember one of the uh, the things that ended up making China think so much more about pollution and therefore climate change more than a decade ago is when the U.S. Embassy in Beijing began to monitor air quality readings and the same right. in New Delhi, another highly polluted city. Uh, and that ended up, in a sense, generating more civic interest and civic pressure on those governments to do more. Public scrutiny is a very critical component of this. I think no nation wants to have its citizens saying, wait a minute, we're not behaving like a good neighbor and we're not acting in our own interest and our own people are breathing bad air or drinking bad water and people in public life have to be concerned about those kinds of things. It certainly drove some of the activity within China during a period of time. Now we have to hope that China, which is stepping up as a global power, will recognize that you can't be a responsible global leader if you're not reducing emissions and uh, meeting the responsibilities of the crisis of climate. Given all of the lockdowns of the last year and everything the world has been through, what lessons do you think the world has learned from its response to COVID-19 that can be applied to the fight against climate change? I'm worried about that, Robbie. I think there are rhetorical lessons spoken, but I'm not sure there are lessons applied. Particularly with respect to the climate challenge, we seem to be building back, not better, but just using the same old, same old, rather than using it as a breakpoint opportunity and saying we're going to go out and deploy more renewable quickly and, and do the following. Uh, according to the International Energy Association, Fatih Birol, who heads it up. What we see is this year, global emissions will increase substantially, mainly driven by coal. Dr. Birol has said that we are on track right now 
to have an historic high increase rate uh, of carbon dioxide in the build back. That is not good and that does not augur well for where we're headed. So that is why it is so imperative that every major emitting country start to grapple with this question of current emissions. We should not be bringing new coal-fired power plants online right now, but there are new plants coming online in too many countries. And there are better alternatives for those countries that exist right now. So that's the place we're at, which is really the, the heart and soul of this negotiation we have yet to really break through on, to get people to stop more definitively this uh, new coal power uh, in favor of renewable and start uh, trying to build a different kind of more efficient grid that is uh, more friendly to the future. It must be hard and tiring and sometimes depressing to deal with an issue like climate change where so much of the the news and the issues we're dealing with is is all doom and gloom and, and just seems daunting. Let me flip that. What, what makes you optimistic today? And look what we're doing with vaccines today. In the United States, we will have a vaccine for every person that needs it within a very short span of time. I wish people were all ready to use them and take them. Uh, but the fact is that we're doing things. There, there's just our breakthroughs in technologies and other things. The possibilities are enormous in my judgment. So my optimism is that uh, there are things we've done that have made life better, despite the fact that we're on this terrible course uh, in the long run with respect to what we're doing with the environment. But I think we can turn that around. And I'm confident that just as we went to the moon with a confidence, not knowing exactly what we were going to do or when we were going to get there, but we rose to the challenge. And in many other ways, I think we have proven again and again that when we put our minds to something, we can and will get it done. And I think our, that's our record. And I believe in that. And it keeps me feeling uh, optimistic and hopeful about the future. There are days I get frustrated or, and even angry because I think we're just being dumb about some things, to ignore certain realities, to avoid scientific evidence, to turn our backs on truth is pretty infuriating. And to be delayed in the ability to do many of these things because of that is totally infuriating. But what's your choice? You got to keep pushing, you keep going. I think life is sort of built up on these incremental additions that we get and hopefully, ultimately, you get where you want to go. My last question. If you were to set yourself a goal of feeling good about 2021 and how it's gone, and allow yourself a rum punch on a beach on December 31st, <laughs> how would the year have gone for that to happen? Well, we would have uh, ended this scourge of COVID-19 in a way that, or at least gotten control over it. We're not going to end it, per se but we'd have gotten sufficient control over it that people have a feeling we're returning to a more normal, new normal life uh, that is less interrupted by uh, the precautions that we have to take. Uh, and I think it would be by knowing that in Glasgow, the world did set out on a path where we have a real shot and the best shot 
of holding the Earth's temperature to 1.5 degrees and of heading towards a future that is 2050 net zero. That all of that is achievable because the world came together in Glasgow to make it possible. I'll have plenty of rum on that one. So will I. Secretary Kerry, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Secretary John Kerry is the U.S. Special Presidential Climate Envoy. Thanks for listening to Global Reboot. I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. Our podcast is a partnership between Foreign Policy and Doha Forum. Our production staff includes Rosie Julin, Rob Sachs, Dan Efron, Darcy Palder, and Zimone Perez. Next time on Global Reboot, how COVID-19 and what we've learned from the pandemic will shape our public health going forward. I think we have learned that we are more interdependent and more connected to one another's outcomes and futures than we might be comfortable thinking about. Science is going to move much, much faster and it's going to be more collaborative, more global. That's next week on Global Reboot.